Get Real is recorded on the unceded lands of the Boonarong and Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We also acknowledge that the first peoples of Australia are the first storytellers, the first artists and the first creators of culture and we celebrate their enduring connections to country, knowledge and stories. Welcome to Get Real, talking mental health and disability, brought to you by the team at Irma365. Join our hosts, Emily Webb and Carenza Louis-Smith, as we have frank and fearless conversations with special guests about all things mental health and complexity. We recognise people with lived experience of mental ill health and disability, as well as their families and carers. We recognise their strength, courage and unique perspective as a vital contribution to this podcast so we can learn, grow and achieve better outcomes together. I think fundamentally most people do want to change their behaviours. I think they just don't know how because it is complex, as you say, whether we're talking about mental illness or about offending, and they can often be a crossover. It's a very complex question. How do you change behaviour? And I think the thing is that trauma is messy. It's not simple at all. It's distressing. It's hard for people to understand. It's hard for people that get you, who know you, who love you to even understand it too, let alone yourself trying to kind of understand that. It's really important and really powerful for people to say, I deserve care. I want to feel better. And what's happened to me has happened and we can't change that. But the question is, what now? Can the rest of my life? be different? Can I approach life with more compassion for myself and more care and more strength? Hello and welcome to Get Real. Carenza Louis-Smith is here too and as always we're looking forward to this conversation. Hey Carenza. Hey Anne, great to be here with you today. And our guest for this episode is Dr. Ahona Guha, a Melbourne-based forensic and clinical psychologist. She works with survivors of abuse and who live with trauma. And she also works privately with clients for a range of things, including anxiety, depression, burnout and relationships. Ahona also works with perpetrators of harmful behaviours to assess risk and provides treatment to reduce the risks they pose to others. And she has a deep understanding of the psychological and social factors that cause people to abuse others. It's the pointy end of mental health care, as we know well at Irma365, because some of the services we provide and the people we support have had or have interactions with forensic mental health care and the legal and justice systems. Ahona has written her first book, Reclaim, Understanding Complex Trauma and Those Who Abuse. It's a compelling read, which explores difficult topics that you don't hear discussed a lot outside of specialist and professional realms. It's content that we think a lot of people want to know and will find useful, and Ahona is compassionate and plain speaking in how she communicates this. Welcome, Ahona. Thanks for joining us. We're really excited to have you on Get Real. Thank you so much for having me, Emily, and hi to you, Corenza. Lovely to meet you. And before we start, we'll be talking about some topics that listeners may find difficult, including complex trauma. If you're affected by anything discussed in this episode, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14, or there's 13 YARN, which is Crisis Support for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Peoples. 
And importantly, you can also get in touch with your healthcare and or mental health support team. There will also be details for other support services in the show notes for this episode. And also Ahona is speaking from her position as a psychologist and she'll talk more about this when we get into the chat. So over to you, Karenza. Thanks, Anne. Look, this is really exciting and I'm thrilled that we're having this conversation with you today, Ahona. Um, And the book, I've started to read your book and it's excellent and it's a good read. It's an easy read too. Sometimes you pick up books and you think, oh my goodness, this is going to be really, really heavy. Your book isn't at all. And I think what you've written about is what people like me and my colleagues and others that work, I guess, in the mental health sector have seen and talked about for years. So I'm really pleased to see these issues, you know, in your book and being spoken, I guess, more and more about. Why did you want to write the book? I mean, it's bold, it's important, um, it's a it's a critical conversation, I think, for us to have. But what what was it that drove that for you? What drove it? Well, first, um, I guess I just want to say quickly that I'm that I'm going to keep my keep my conversation relatively easy to access. I'm not going to be talking about hugely traumatic things. I want to make this a very accessible and a safe podcast. So just a little bit of caveating there. So I'm going to be making some very general comments. These, This is not going to be professional advice. So just a little bit of a disclaimer before I jump in there. Look, in terms of why I wrote the book, the idea for the book probably occurred to me a long time ago. So when I first started studying my doctorate, because I learned a lot about forensic psychology and about, and about why people harm. And it felt like not a lot of that information was getting into the public domain. And then the, the idea probably really crystallized in March 2021 when I think Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins first started talking about their experiences publicly. I heard a lot of myths about both trauma survivors and also people who perpetrate harm. And I started to feel quite frustrated by the way trauma was being spoken about and you know, represented within the broader media. A lot of the books on trauma seem to be Social media focus, slightly feel good, slightly vague books about trauma, they tend to discount the darker experiences that people who have complex trauma histories experience. And I was tired of hearing about things like insomnia, blinking too much, perfectionism as being trauma responses. They can be, but as I've spoken about in Reclaim, there are there are also far darker manifestations of trauma. And I guess on the flip side, lots and lots of myths abound about people who harm and why they harm others felt like it was really important to start to correct the balance a little bit and really provide the public with good, accessible, not overly clinical experience and work, but work that's still based on on all of my study and on good evidence-based psychology. And I guess I speak a little bit about my own trauma history as well, without going into too much detail. Largely speaking, I think I wanted to write the book that I may have benefited from back when I was going through my own healing journey as well. And Ahona, we've known each other for a while. Um, listeners, I'll share that Ahona and I first met through our mutual love of greyhounds. We met through a greyhound adoption group. But Ahona, watching you and your work and your writing, and I've spoken to you before, I'm really attracted to how you communicate these complex, difficult issues that people simply don't want to acknowledge or hear about. Like you said, the reasons people harm, we want it very clearly defined as good, bad, Black, Very white. Black yeah, it's and, black and it's not possible, <laughs> yeah. is it? And, you know, we know that people end up in courts, prisons, mental health services, and are battling along with really tricky challenges and behaviours that unfortunately have the capacity to cause harm to others as well as themselves. So why did you go into this work in the first place? Because it's not easy. It's not nice. It's the pointy end, as we said in the intro. 
I think I fell into the forensic field perhaps accidentally. I've always had a strong interest in trauma. And I assumed when I started studying psychology that I'd be working in straight clinical private practice. I came to forensics a little bit later in the piece, and I think it's a very good fit for my personality. And there's probably been something that's been pulling me there all along, even though it took me a little bit of time to recognize that. I think fundamentally I have a strong drive for fairness and justice. Um, I think I've always been interested in working with people who can't advocate for themselves. I've also always had really high tolerance and the capacity to sit with risk. And I think really starting to put the pieces together and starting to think about these thorny questions about, about why people harm has really been a big drive for me because it feels like that's how we can start to affect change and it's just a good match for me. So I'm thinking about, you know, trauma itself, you know, and I've, I've worked obviously in the mental health service system for many, many years, but I've also, you know, been quite outspoken is not the right word, but, you know, have talked openly about my own, I guess, childhood trauma and the things that kind of happen in your lives and impact you. And I think, you know, make you who you are today. And I think when you think about trauma, there are so many different thoughts and views about what trauma actually is, you know, and it's a very much catch-all term. It gets used a lot to reference many, many, many experiences. And trauma, I think, for some people can be a hard road and it can take years, years for people to even understand or get an inkling about their own trauma. And I know in my case, it probably wasn't until my 40s that I really began to understand that, you know, decades after those kind of events that happen in your life. So do you think, just for our listeners, you could talk a little bit about perhaps the clinical definitions of trauma and what complex trauma is, and maybe even the kind of presentations that you might see? So I think that people listening can have an understanding a bit more about, about trauma. Look, it's very hard to actually define trauma. I think, um, largely speaking, the DSM-5 defines it as a life-threatening event. The ICD-11 goes a little bit broader and talks about it as complex, horrifying events, which, which might overwhelm your coping resources. So really, really broad definitions there. Largely speaking, the way I define trauma is difficult things which happen to you, which are usually done you know, deliberately. And in the instance of complex trauma, things that are often cumulative and, and happen repeatedly. So they are more chronic versus the single event trauma, which might be which might be interpersonal. So it could be something like an assault, but it could also be something like a car crash or or a natural disaster. So I think it's important to draw the two apart a little bit because I think they can be different consequences and ramifications of the single event versus the complex trauma and treatment pathways can be quite quite different. The presentations can be so vast. I think it's very, very difficult for me to pin one down, but I'll see anything from a really complex forensic presentation in prison where, as we know, there are huge histories of trauma and people will come in with great emotional dysregulation, lots and lots of suicidality and self-harm, aggression toward other people, substance use. So some really dark pathways and trajectories at times. I've seen people who have experiences of psychosis, which is a very organic condition, but there are often trauma experiences which can underpin the way a person starts to starts to develop, which ultimately possibly triggers the psychosis. In my private practice, I'll see other sorts of presentations often slightly less complex. And that's where I'll see severe anxiety, 
you know, low mood, eating disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders. Again, the perfectionism, which I which I talked about before, which can be a trauma symptom, but it's not always a trauma symptom. And the question there often in private practice is about starting to put the pieces together because these are things people have struggled with for a long time. They've done piecemeal treatment. So they've done a little bit of treatment for depression, some for anxiety, but often these things haven't been pulled together for people to actually identify often the complex trauma that sits under these experiences. So yeah, very, very different presentations in, in my clinical work and my forensic work, but often underpinned by trauma. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Those two different, I guess, experiences that you're describing. And I, I think it's a really, it's good because, you know, in your book, you write about working with, you know, and I'm doing speech marks here, difficult people who live with trauma. And I think the thing is that trauma's messy, right? It's not, messy. it's not, it's not simple at all, is it? It's distressing. It's hard for people to understand. It's hard for people that get you, who know you, who love you to even understand it too, let alone yourself trying to kind of understand that. And then for professionals and clinicians like you doing the work that you do, I reckon it would be pretty challenging to, to work with. And as you said, you work with many people, and in particular, I'm thinking about the forensic component of your work, who have perhaps been involved in you know, perpetrating very violent, extremely harmful actions to other people. And, you know, at the beginning, you talked about Brittany Higgins, Grace Tain, hearing those stories as well. What do you want readers to understand, I think, about that and the, I suppose, the complexity that that is around people that might perpetrate some yeah. of those acts? I think that's a really good question. I think the few things that I'd want people to take away are that trauma is really messy, really complex, that it's not an, an excuse for bad behavior. And I think that's a really important one to get across because when I because when I say that trauma can underpin harmful behavior, people sometimes think that I'm that I'm excusing what, what people have done. And that's not the case at all. It's more about helping people to understand what might underpin some of their actions which can sometimes involve looking at the trauma and the way the trauma's changed, how they think and feel about the world. So simple things like if someone attacks me, I'm going to attack them and I'm going to hurt them first. That that can sometimes come from a early complex trauma history and that can often lead to people engaging in really harmful behaviours. I think also important to keep in mind that not everyone who has a history of trauma is going to hurt other people that there are lots of people who have histories of trauma who actually function really well. So the question is quite complex here. And we know that violence and harm are really multifactorial. And by that, I mean that there are different different factors which cause it. So trauma is a part of the picture, but not the whole picture. And I think it's really important to emphasize that because people look for really simplistic explanations sometimes and tend to focus on trauma equals equals harm pathway. And it's a lot more complicated. And I think, yeah, trauma work is really important for people who harm other people, but it's not the only thing that's going to help. I think when I work with perpetrators, I engage in a lot of other forensic assessment around what their offending needs are. So trauma is part of it. But again, it's not the whole picture. Listening to you talk then, I think it's really powerful because I think people, you know, you're sitting down and you're picking up the paper, you're reading the stories, and I think most people's reactions are, you know, lock the door, throw away the key, these are really terrible, terribly bad people, and you get everything that you deserve, lock you up forever, never want to see you again. And I, I think what you're saying is it's not that simple. It's not always that simple. There are certainly times where I've 
you know, assessed people and said, you're very dangerous. And at this point in time, until some treatment and management pathways can be put in place, the community needs to be protected from, from you. But it's still not a punishing view around lock this person up because they because they deserve to be caged and throw away the key. It's more about other people need to be kept safe. But most often, and I'm talking that's just a tiny, tiny percentage of the people I've seen, for the majority of people I see, it's easy for me to see how life has been very, very nasty to these people before they start harming other people. And I often do feel compassion, which is very much boundaried by a sense of other people have to be kept safe as well. But there's a sense that I can see why their pathway has taken them down this you know, trajectory. And sometimes it's trauma, but it's also parental incarceration, parental mental health issues, early substance use, early school, school disengagement, a sense that the world is against a person. These are all the sorts of things I see, and it's never as simple as the big Herald Sun Christ killer type headline. Yeah, I mean, you're talking, I think you're talking a bit about a cycle here, you know, like a cycle of abuse and all those different things that, yeah, happen. And how do you, how can people then truly, genuinely actually break that cycle? If all the cards are stacked against you, you've been dealt a really crappy hand, how does that shift and change? And that's why I'm very careful not to say that one-to-one trauma therapy alone is going to be the answer for everyone and is going to heal people, which is a word we love using. I think when you're talking about that really entrenched cycle of disadvantage, focusing on the basics, so what we call the social determinants of health, so very simple things like housing, educational support, employment support, leisure, a chance to form safe relationships, to help to get off drugs. All of these things are really, really important. And then I think trauma work can be a part of that. And certainly seems to be or is essential, but there'll be different types of trauma work that people can engage with based on their capacities and based on how safe and secure their own lifestyle is. You can't do deep processing work if things are you know, very, very up in the air and very unsafe. So Trauma work's a part of it, but I think we have a lot more to do in terms of breaking the cycle, and that involves good health and social welfare mechanisms and simple things like raising the age, funding funding more mental health beds, funding more housing. You know, these are very unpopular views. People want me to say, send everyone to a psychologist and they'll be able to fix it. But realistically, we can't. We need all this other stuff in place as well. Karenza, I want to ask you a question. What do you want to tell listeners about working with people with complex mental health? Because it's, it is really complex in many situations. I mean, I had no idea until I started working here. Yeah, I think owners aren't completely on the money. I don't think it's any one single thing. And I think it's all about trying to understand the cycle that people have found themselves in. And, and then how do you kind of try and, um, how do you try and change that? And I think Ahun is completely right as well. Like you, you can't do one piece in isolation. You have to look at a person, I think, as a whole and try and support them to put the pieces together and the pieces in place, which can be very, very difficult. And I, and I think what Ahuna you're talking about is that we form all sorts of views and opinions and perhaps even prejudices, you know, about who who we think people are and what, what we think about them when we hear part of their story or the the, the terrible exactly. thing that's happened and done. And I don't think we can truly, really understand the whole picture until you really kind of get in there and try and understand the whole picture, which is what I took from your writing in your book, you know, and there's so many myths and stereotypes and all of those things out there, but it's it's never that simple. 
Yeah, really important for me to try to break down and try to address, because as you say, when people talk about crime in media and broadly speaking in society, it focuses on what a person has done. It very, very rarely talks about the backstory. Sometimes I'll do this thing because forensic psychologists are very strange people where I go on onto Ostley and I look at the judge's sentencing comments and that that can be really informative because it tells you about what a person's done but it also usually goes into the backstory and into into the factors that that actually lead to offending and to the person having you know perpetrated that awful crime and I think that can be really eye-opening and that's largely speaking what I do in my day-to-day work which is trying to unpick the pieces and I see it a bit like a jigsaw puzzle I'm pulling all the pieces together and going how does this fit together and once I've got the picture the question is then what now how do we keep this person safe and how do we keep other people safe and I think fundamentally most people do want to change their behaviors I think they just don't know how because it is complex as you say whether we're talking about mental illness or about offending and they can often be a crossover it's a very complex question how do you change behavior I mean honestly I can't even stop eating sugar <laughs> it's very powerful neither can it? I it is had how do you change behavior, you know? And yeah, it's it's difficult. It's very, very difficult. And especially when there are these entrenched cycles of disadvantage and when maybe your friends and family or approach the world in a certain way or you left school really young and you can't get a job and you think you're going to be dead by 30 anyway. So what's what's the point in trying to be better? Mm-hmm. These are some really complex questions. And I think there's a lot of hopelessness and helplessness that can sit in maybe both the complex mental health space, but also the offending space and certainly in the area where they cross over. And Hona, I follow you on social media and I read, you know, you've done a lot of writing. Before you did this book, you write on your social media articles and you talk. And I was really interested in how you speak about the kind of explosion of pop psychology memes and Instagram posts. And hey, I love a good meme. I love a good, you know, um, love a bit of TikTok, uh, you know, ADHD (laughs) or whatever talk. But a lot of these come from people who aren't actually clinically trained. Look, they may have living experience, which is absolutely valuable to share that. But some influencers, or I call them pseudo experts, are dishing out advice or coaching or, you know, doing whatever, particularly around, I see stuff about complex trauma and I kind of think, wow, this is uh, veering into some dangerous territory. And you call this you call this out on your social media accounts, but you explore it more in your book, Reclaim. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Well, I think this is probably a good day to take this, given Prince Harry has just been diagnosed with PTSD as well as ADHD in a live pay-per-view session. And he didn't ask for a diagnosis, mind you. So very interesting ethics there. But that's that's the kind of stuff I tend to call out. Um, look, I think important to differentiate between lived experience, which is a type of expertise, but it's but it's not the only relevant expertise. And what I'm talking about, which, as you say, are more the pseudo influencers or pseudo experts, people who want to make make a buck or get more followers and have jumped onto the trauma bandwagon because it sells. I think that's that's the category I tend to call out. I've seen a proliferation of writing about trauma, very, very simplistic writing. So as I said, if you blink too many times, you have trauma, or if you can't sleep, you have you have trauma. 
I think it's really harmful because it does a disservice to people who might be experiencing darker difficulties or people who might be really trying to understand what they've been through and trying to look for good, accurate diagnostic information and also where to get treatment. I think it oversimplifies things. I think it tends to reduce trauma to these very neat bite-sized pieces of information. And all of this darker complexity that we are talking about and exploring here tends to get lost. So I guess I just worry about the sort of information people are taking away and what they're doing with it and whether it's going to help or harm people longer term. Yeah, I agree. Look, I I was late diagnosed ADHD at age 45. And look, I'll, I'll share some funny stuff about, you know, oops, misplaced this, but it's like it, there is a, a darker side to when you understand a diagnosis and, you know, it is like putting a puzzle together. And yes, funny things and relatable things help. But when people say, oh, how did you know you had ADHD? You can't exactly quantify it. Yeah, it's, yeah. Like a, it's like a yeah. thing where it just evolves and then you go through the process of seeing your GP, seeing a psychiatrist. You and I have talked a little bit about your ADHD diagnostic process and I hope it's okay for us to talk yeah, about yeah, it. Yeah, that's fine. But from kind of memory, it was a very intensive process where you had to do a range of surveys where they talked to you about how you were as, as a child. They may have spoken to other people in your life. So it's, so it's actually quite a comprehensive process. It's not a sit down, do a one hour interview to talk about how you felt as a child and whether you felt on the outer. And here you go, you have ADHD. I think diagnosis is a really, really big field. It's really important to be very responsible with it because this can be make or break for people's lives. And I think, especially in the trauma world, I often see people come in thinking they have trauma, but it might actually be ADHD. It might be ESD. Sometimes it might might even be psychosis. And it's really important to be able to do a differential diagnostic process, which is where you're looking at all of the symptoms and trying to pull things apart to see whether it's this or that. And I think sometimes the means and, you know, the the whole the whole Prince Harry thing tends to forget the complexity of that, which can be really problematic. Well, so I want to stick with the same kind of theme, you know. So, I mean, I think people are really intrigued, Ahona, by the work that you do. You know, true crime is really popular. You look at programs like Only Murders in the Building, you know, you you see, you know, the um, terrible, suspicious death of a woman in the UK. Did she fall into a river or not fall into the river? And there are thousands of people, yeah, that descended on the town. And then all the theories that went across social media. And people, I think, are fascinated by this. You you work, as, as I said earlier, with, you know, men and women who are in prisons, perpetrators of very violent crime, stalkers, people who have abused children. Like You work with some really complex situations. And there's also this passive consumption of information about crime, I think, from what is out there in the media, documentaries, on televisions. And it doesn't often allow people to sort of see that bigger, the bigger picture. And I think we've been talking about that. And I, and you talk about, I think, a lot about that in the book as well, that you're writing about. It's black and white. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how we might try and, can we change that or not change that? It's such a hard question. I think I don't really understand the fascination with crime myself. And that's probably because I work in the field and I know how essentially not very interesting crime can be sometimes. Whereas often when I read about crime or read fiction, because I tend to not do true crime anymore, I just I just find that too hard given my work. There's often these really fantastic plot twists and difficult psychological phenomenon 
which isn't really quite what I see in my day-to-day life. So I don't quite know where the fascination comes from, whether it's just interest in what makes people veer toward the dark side, and maybe a sense of recognition that we can all do harmful things and almost a sense of wanting to push that away. I'm really curious about that. I think in terms of changing the narrative, I think it's really important, I think, for the media to become a little bit more responsible. Well, not a little bit more, a lot more responsible about about how it talks about offending and crime and mental health. I see some awful headlines. I see some really non-trauma informed articles. I saw an article the other day on the ABC, which actually really shocked me because it started with the word criminal and went on to talk about someone's life. And it just felt like it was really, really pejorative. And I expected better from the from the ABC. I think simple things like that, but also the, you know, really dialing back the very sensationalized style of writing, the Daily Mail style of writing that we're drawn to, I think, acknowledging some of the nuances in this area, maybe looking at longer form things like this interview or some of the excellent books. You know, I'm thinking about the book about Cardinal Pell that was written by Melissa Davey. And I think there was one by Louise Milligan as well. Those are those are ways to access really good information that are evidence-based and realistic. So I think the onus is on the media and on people who create content, but also on the public to be thinking and maybe seeking out information that's a little bit more authoritative. And really asking a question of who's writing this, do they have the expertise or the or the, the knowledge, or do they have a drum debate? Powerful, isn't it? Because I think it's about what people consume. And I think in a world where we're saturated by media, it's the clickbait that sucks people in, it's the headlines, it's the exactly. simple, quick, easy yeah. to read. I wonder whether in a world where things are really complex and sometimes we feel a sense of helplessness, there's, you know, nice, easy, neat kind of narratives where there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and you lock the bad guy up and we are kept safe forever is quite appealing, almost a little bit of a Red Riding Hood um, style. I think it's probably very appealing, yeah, and helps people to feel safe. Yeah. So I'm really keen to talk about the Mental Health Royal Commission, you know. So we've had a Royal Commission and it's said, look, our mental health service system isn't great. I kind of describe it like a bowl of spaghetti. Good luck, you know, to try and work out where you've got to go. And even even if you work in it, it's incredibly difficult to try and find how to get to the right places. It's not joined up. It's messy. And so, you know, the Commission has set out a vision for what they think the service system could look like. There's certainly quite a few recommendations when it talks about the forensic, you know, population, people with forensic mental health as mental health more broadly. I'm really curious to get your take, you know, what you what you've seen, what you think, whether you think the commission kind of hits the mark, what you think a new, you know, if we were sat here in 20 years' time and we were looking back, what could a mental health service system look like? And in particular for people with really complex trauma in their lives? Look, I think Victoria is doing some great work. I think, you know, in terms of what all the states are doing, it certainly rank us as really highly in terms of trying to make changes. My experience and I interface, even though I work in forensic mental health, most of my clients have complex mental health needs and I interface a lot with the area mental health services and occasionally the private system as well. I've still continued to notice lots of gaps and I think lots of areas where people fall through the cracks. 
it feels like the resourcing within the public system is still not at the level that we would like. And I've recently had experiences where people have been discharged from hospital because there's no beds and they pose a risk to themselves and to other people. And they're given the name of a private clinic and said, here you go. Good luck. And these are sometimes people who can't access and can't engage with private psychology and maybe private psychology wouldn't actually take them on because of the risk. Um, So I still see, I think, a lot of gaps in the system. And what I'm noticing is a lot of services coming online, but still very difficult and very complex for consumers to know where to go and to access care. And it feels like the more services there are, the more confusing the system becomes. I also think in terms of treatment for complex trauma, and again, that's a lot of the work I do, we don't have the service systems yet. And I know that there's a statewide trauma service coming on, but it feels like it's going to be a little bit more consultative than than direct one-to-one care base at the moment all of the complex trauma clients largely sit in the private system, which, as we know, offers 10 subsidized sessions a year. And when you think of the number of diagnoses a complex trauma survivor has, the first two to three sessions are really just assessment alone. And it often takes years of sustained one-to-one work on a weekly basis to cure trauma. So that's a little bit of a bugbear I have, that, that, that those needs continue to be unaddressed. So look, overall, I want to be optimistic and I want to say it feels like we are trying. I'm still concerned about the holes in the system and about the fact that people just don't know where to access care because it's really confusing for me sometimes as a person with a lot of experience and training in the field to go, well, who do I call? Oh, you're not going to give me the direct number, even though I work in a mental health care service. So I guess I'll wait in line for a triage service to call me back in three hours. We also don't have enough psychiatrists and psychologists, and that's a federal issue. That's that's not a state issue. But until that's addressed, the bottleneck is going to stay. And it doesn't look like anyone's making any moves to address that. I'm also curious, too, so like people will be listening to this podcast and there'll be things that have resonated with them today. You know, They might be thinking, actually, you know, I... I do have a, a complex history. There was a, a series of incidents or things that happened to me that were traumatic and I can see how my life is difficult, complicated, messy even as a result of that. You might have gone and got a little bit here or a little bit there, but there's never been this joined up approach. And I'm sitting and I'm listening to this podcast and we're saying that the mental health service system is really difficult to navigate, right? So then where do I start? If that's me, I'm listening, I'm going ticked so many boxes for me and I don't want to keep sitting in this space feeling the way that I feel. What can I do? I think a few practical things. So getting more information can be really helpful and that may involve listening to other podcasts, maybe doing a little bit of reading about complex trauma to start to put the pieces of the puzzle together. I think it can be helpful for people to know that trauma isn't just physical things which can happen, but also things like neglect and more emotionally abusive relationship to really start to identify the things in their life which might have been traumatic. I think if the trauma is affecting your life, and for some people it doesn't because they've actually found stability and security and they've found a way to live with it, but a lot of others struggle and it's often things like low mood and feeling like things are quite uncontrollable, maybe really maybe being really scared of the world to start to think about what what it would look like to address that. Obviously, the private psychological system is probably the best place at this point in time 
to address a history of complex trauma, simply because my understanding is, and you might be able to correct me, but that the public system, it's mostly for the really acute presentation. So unless you have a history of something like psychosis or bipolar disorder, you may not be able to access care within within the ambit of area mental health services. Is that is that is that right, Karenza? Or <laughs> I think again, that's the million dollar question, isn't it? And I think as the system's not joined up, it's really hard for people yeah. to even know where to begin. But yeah, you're so, you certainly would, wouldn't necessarily be presenting with something that was acute, you know, in a, in a triage service or something. Exactly. I don't think. So for something that's more chronic and long-standing, I think your GPs are really good. Port of call, trying to find psychologists who specialize in trauma is really important because you want someone who can maybe help you identify the way you form these patterns in life and the fact that all of these different pieces and these different spot fires, they may be actually connected to this bigger blaze of trauma. And I think that can be really important to do because often complex trauma survivors have quite a chaotic life and psychological work can look like putting out the fires without actually going, hey, what are the what are the patterns here? I think it's really important to note that treatment is available, that it's it's possible and it and it works. You know, I've been through my own treatment and my my life has changed completely. And I think I was lucky enough to start going to therapy very, very young in life, which which helped. But yeah, change is change is possible. I think that's a really, really powerful message, isn't it? I don't think it matters how old you are or where you're at in life. It's that moment to say I can't do this on my own anymore. I, I probably need some help now. And I'm entitled to ask for care. I think that's that's a big one. And I'm allowed to say that the things which happened to me were difficult and were traumatic instead of, as a lot of complex trauma survivors do, pulling the, well, other people had it worse card. And that can be a bit of a defense, I think, to push things away and go, well, other people had it worse, so I'm not allowed to ask for care. That's often because of messaging from perpetrators. So things like, well, you shouldn't cry, it wasn't that bad. But I think it's really important and really powerful for people to say, I deserve care, I want to feel better, and what's happened to me has happened, and we can't change that. But the question is, what now? can the rest of my life, however long or short that's going to be, can that be different? Can I approach life with more compassion for myself and more care and more strength? That's a very, very powerful message, I think, for anyone listening to this podcast who finds themselves in that situation. Because I don't think, I know from my own experience, I never felt that way. I never felt I was deserving of or any of those things. And that's very very powerful proposition when you start to stop and think well actually maybe I am you know it, it, it can be a game changer I think so I think that's one of the biggest things I've noticed that people come into therapy feeling like they shouldn't be there or or they'll often often say to me oh it's not that bad I don't want to waste your time and that really breaks my heart mm. because we all we all deserve care and yeah. to feel better and there's no trauma ranking scale And I think that leads very well to the next question we like to ask of all our guests. What do you do to take care of yourself? Because you do talk about vicarious trauma in the book, but also, you know, there's a lot of self-care you need to do for yourself when you're in this line of work. Look, it's a constantly moving feast. And the biggest thing that I can say I do is I check in with myself. And look, it's taken me a long time to 
to learn this almost 13 years of therapy and counting to actually start to check in with with myself daily, not just assume that I've got the perfect work-life balance worked out and kind of continue, but to actually listen to what my body's saying. Like, for instance, today I'm quite tired, so I know that I'm going to go to bed early and maybe have a later start to the day tomorrow instead of pushing myself to go to the gym in the morning. So that's so that's kind of self-care for me. So other days it might be about things like actually getting up and going to the gym because I need my body to move or maybe going to yoga. So self-care is not burning a candle and popping on a face mask for me, though I do love candles. But it's but it's often about setting up a lifestyle which can endure, which sometimes means knowing when to say no. And I think especially for me, because there's so many work opportunities I could say yes to, to know when I can't and to actually be okay with saying, sorry, I've extended myself too much and I'm going to have to pull back or that's my period of leave and I'm going to be away for those three weeks. And so leave is really important for me. Weekends are really important to try and have a couple of long weekends every couple of months, engage in really regular conversations with my clinical supervisor and my line manager just about my caseload. I often have to have to kind of juggle things around to make sure I'm working with the same forensic population or the same forensic presentation because if I have four clients who say are really angry with women and my stalkers, that can that can start to be be really heavy. Whereas if I can spread them out a little bit and see people with different presentations, that doesn't evoke the same trauma response. So yeah, look, I do I do lots and lots of self-care things, even just walking my dog. But it's really about I think starting to understand who I am, being okay with my reduced capacities at times and being compassionate to myself. I think that is where the true power sits for me. I think we're coming to the end of our conversation. It's been a really, really rich discussion, Ahana, and I've really enjoyed all the things that, that we've spoken about. And I really, you know, truly hope that for people listening that you take something from this and, you know, you've, you've shared some really wise, um, really wise words. Is there anything that you would like to say as we wrap up? No, and just thank you for having me on here. I think it's really important to have platforms for people who have spent a lot of time building expertise can actually come on and talk about these things in a little bit more detail. And I know that you do some excellent work within the complex mental illness space, which is a really, really difficult and a very challenging space and sometimes a helpless space for practitioners and providers and carers and maybe even the people with lived experience themselves to sit in. So yeah, I guess just wanting to send a message of hope that things can be better and a message of support for for everyone. Thanks so much, Ahona. I'm really thrilled that you could join us. And if you've been listening and need support, we'll have links to support services in the show notes for this episode. And of course, you can also speak to your medical practitioner. And Ahona's book, Reclaim, is available now at bookstores and online, and we highly recommend it. If you've been affected by anything discussed in this podcast, you can phone Lifeline on 13 11 14 or go to lifeline.org.au we'd love you to share get real with your family and friends you can also rate and review get real on your preferred podcast listening player your reviews help people find us you've been listening to get real talking mental health and disability brought to you by the team at irma 365 Get Real is produced and presented by Emily Webb with Carenza Louis-Smith and special guests. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.
IRMA 365 provides specialist support for people with complex mental ill health and disability. Established by consumers in 1982, today IRMA 365 is proud to deliver services across Victoria and in the Northern Territory. Find out more at www.irma.org. That's E-R-M-H-A dot org.